0: From Chagdagompa Riggs and Lane, this is Listen, Contemplate, Meditate, a podcast featuring a range of teachings from the Buddhist tradition presented by Lamas of Chagdagompa Foundation. Our website is Chagdugumpa.org When we meditate, even the simplest of meditations, then uh, we immediately notice that the emotions calm down. The, the word emotion comes from motion, the mind in motion. And uh, the, the skill of meditation is, uh, stops it. It presses the pause button. It doesn't necessarily transform it, but it does allow the emotions to simply stop, and we rediscover the space of mind. And to have that discovery, to know that that space is there, is, uh, for us as, as spiritual practitioners, it doesn't seem so usual. But most beings don't know that space is there. They don't know how to access the space of mind, the calmness of mind, the natural purity of mind. So, there's so many ways to approach the topic of the emotions. And uh, from the Dharma point of view, from a psychological point of view, and they all have validity. The, uh, I, I see people uh, who come to me... Who, for spiritual practice who also benefit deeply from various skillful therapies, especially trauma therapies. But the the reason we work with the emotions on the spiritual path is that uh, the emotions, whether they are positive or whether they are negative, they add a layer of distortion to our perception. And how this happens is that it's easiest to explain in terms of consciousness. In the Tibetan Dharma, consciousness is said to have eight aspects. The five sense consciousnesses, and then the mental consciousness, the ideational consciousness. And so something presents itself to our sense fields, and then we form an idea about it. And then on the basis of that idea, then we react emotionally. The the idea that we form is always itself partial. In this very room, there are myriad phenomena. There's no, there's an infinity of phenomena, and so each of us, according to our personal patterns, select the phenomena that we give attention to, and the um, the the idea we form is partial, and the reaction that we form is distorted. And so we create a pattern of emotionality. If we're unaware of it, then uh, it becomes a kind of um, repeat. We repeat the pattern again and again. The, the example my teacher Chajar Rinpoche would use is chili, that Some people like chili and some people don't like chili. He had a student who tasted Rinpoche's chili and thought he was having a heart attack. Uh, Then, once you've tasted chili and reacted to it one time, you have the likelihood of reacting to it uh, the same way the next time, unless you train your mind to like chili. And so uh, there's a choice there, because we make a choice, and we have this one instant of gap where we form an idea, the idea can pass, the reaction can pass, or we grasp. If we grasp at it, then we contribute to the pattern if we simply uh, let it pass in a state of awareness, then the pattern isn't formed. And the, the knowing that we have that choice uh, is a great power. And so then the... Emotions have no intrinsic uh, good or bad it's the grasping at them and the distortion of them that uh, contributes to our confusion in the in the, the Tibetan teachings it said that we have uh, two demons to deal with. One is the demon of grasping at the objective existence, where we think that what's arising is is really, truly um, stable. And we create a reality that again and again will trick us because it's unstable. It's impermanent. It's passing. It's like a mirage, like a dream. But the second demon is grasping at our inner subjective uh, experience as real. If we pay attention, we see that it's ephemeral and passing, a mirage, a dream, that none of the emotions uh, are stable, lasting, but our holding to them and our our tendency to hold to them is uh, creates a, an ongoing experience of the emotions. So all of these, whenever we uh, grasp, we create a, an imprint in the mind, and that is the pattern. We see it if we. Uh, we pay attention, but the rest of the time it's like the shadow of a bird. If a bird is high in the sky, the shadow isn't apparent. And then uh, when the bird is closer to the ground, then the shadow becomes more obvious. So we come into this, this life with a, a con- con- continuum that's... Pre-established from our past lives, it's um, we can. Uh, it can be a fortunate pattern an unfortunate pattern. The we see uh, children even who are born and immediately angry and with the the predisposition of antisocial behavior, and we see other children who have a tendency, almost uh, from birth, to, toward kindness. And so this continuity, uh, this we need to, to understand, because what we create in this lifetime will establish the continuity of the future. And we, as human beings, have a greater choice than any other kind of being in any of the realms of conditioned existence. There are realms of conditioned existence that are completely the projection of anger. And the, the experience there is layers and layers of, of hostility and hatred Uh, Even if beings in those projections have the good fortune to find a human body, then their tendencies will still be uh, paranoia and fear. And there are other beings who are surrounded by projections of craving and obsession. uh, We see In the human realm, people who are completely addicted and obsessed, uh, those who live inside that entirely without choice, the continuity is very powerful and difficult to counteract. And then all of us see the animal beings who have very little choice, their intelligence, is instinctual and limited to uh, whichever animal existence they are born into. And others are are born into existences of uh, power with strife. And others, very fortunate but indolent and arrogant, and so we have this lifetime in which we have the ability to change that. What motivates us uh, can be the motivation of fear. If we have seen the consequences of hostility and anger, if we've ex- really experienced intense hatred in our own lifetime, where we really were under the influence of our own anger, then there's a tendency of fearing that anger and uh, wanting not to experience it over and over again. If we've been through periods where we're completely obsessed uh, about a relationship or about our work or about uh, some um, injustice that we experienced from others, the, the, there's a desperate uh, need not to go through that Again, and so with that motivation of fear, then there's a willingness to renounce the causes of those emotions, to simplify one's life, to remove the stresses, to to uh, basically to redirect one's life into renunciation and meditation. Whoever does that uh, with, with the proper guidance, with the guidance of the uh, infallible uh, dharma, then can attain a state beyond attachment and aversion beyond the suffering of attachment and aversion, the state of an arhat. And so the Buddha's first disciples were arhats. They were those who came from all walks of life, and having seen the suffering of conditioned existence, were ripe to renounce those conditions, ripe to take ordination and to, to follow the, the spiritual path in a very focused and, and um, directed way, with careful conduct and many rules. Uh, the Buddhist disciples did attain the state of an arhat. The state of an arhat is amazing. Actually, the mind is very clear, and there's the obscurations of the emotions have been removed. But it's not really enough, it's not enlightenment. It's sad uh, that uh, in that state of our hot hood, that it's the Buddha's own intention, it's like the whisper of a voice that comes past one's ear, wake up, wake up, look around. Others are likewise suffering. You've achieved the state beyond suffering, but really is it enough to see others suffering even though you're not? And when that awakening comes, it's the awakening to the path of the bodhisattva, the hero who really takes as uh, his or her intention the benefit of all beings. And so then from that pristine state of meditation, one dives right back into conditioned existence, a willingness to to reach out to being after being, uh, never excluding any category of being, the, the willingness to work endlessly for the welfare of others, the The ability to, to, to accomplish this, though, depends on training one's own mind with the aspiration and the example of omniscient Buddhahood. Otherwise, the compassion and the reaching out uh, hits its own limitations. We look around. If we walked out on this very street right now, We would, and saw the first 20 people, uh, it would be inevitable that we would meet uh, beings in intense states of suffering and we would feel very limited in what we could do for them. Most of us, uh, even in helping our own family, uh, we find limitations. Uh, We want to help our mother, our father, our, our in-laws, our children, and uh, the limitations of our abilities become apparent to us. Um, and so the, the training of the bodhisattva is the cultivation of the natural qualities of the innate mind, the qualities of equanimity, the qualities of love and compassion and joy. The quality of equanimity can be cultivated by contemplating, looking at uh, one being after another, exchanging places, thinking, what is it like? To be in that person's shoes? What is it like to be an animal, that animal? What is it like to be a, a ghost, alienated, wanting some stability? Really allowing the mind to, to explore the possibilities of other beings. And you think, okay. Uh, All of these beings have that same innate purity. They all have the capacity of, of Buddhahood. And yet here they are, trapped in their various situations. And so, on one hand, we see the phenomena of each and every being, if we pay attention to it. On the other hand, we know that that phenomena is transparent and impermanent, changeable, that uh, beneath that phenomena is the, the purity of absolute nature. And the empathetic compassion that we have for the suffering states of this being gives way to a deeper... Uh, Great minded compassion, the compassion that we see, all these beings are uh, trying to stabilize, trying to gain happiness. And, and yet their happiness is re- within them and they don't recognize it. that they live in an illusion. We live in an illusion, they live in an illusion. And when we see that if they could only awaken from the illusion, the heart breaks even more completely. We have the, the profound intention that beings should awaken. And that is where the, the bodhisattva, the one with the, the mind of enlightenment, remains undefeated. Chandra Rinpoche said that uh, the bodhisattva sees the conditions of samsara, of uh, the suffering of samsara, the ocean of samsara, like an old man on the beach playing with children, making sun a wave comes along and washes away the sand castle or some beach bully comes away along and kicks it aside and the children who are making the sand castle cry because they're frustrated and they really believed in that sand castle whereas the old man knew that it was a sand castle and uh, has a completely different perspective he feels the sorrow of the children but he knows the illusion and so the cultivation of equanimity is a willingness to hold all as in with impartial regard looking at their potential as Buddhas. This is really difficult because normally our regard is very partial. If we see a victim and we see an aggressor, we have compassion for the victim and we have hostility for the aggressor. And this seems normal. It seems just. Um, We proliferate this and in, in every uh, in every field I mean we look politically and we see political injustice. we look environmentally we see environmental injustice we turn on the nightly news we see the banks and financial <laughs> injustice today. Uh, we, it's it's endless it's uh, There's no equanimity if we don't see the illusory nature of it all. If we really, how do we enter that that direct experience of the dreamlike, illusory, changeable nature? We really must contemplate impermanence that all of this is arising in some configuration, uh, perfect in some way, but uh, painful. My favorite story in the Dharma, and anybody who's... uh, Heard my teachings, I've heard this 20 times. It comes uh, from Patra Rinpoche's book. It's about an old woman who is always laughing and crying and crying and laughing. One day a, a llama came along and said, Why are you crying, old lady? And she said, look at the conditions of samsara, look at the suffering of sentient beings. You know, who would not weep seeing the suffering of sentient beings? And then she really began to weep. And then she started to laugh. And so the Lama said, I agree. Conditions of samsara are terrible and the suffering of sentient beings is sorrowful, but why are you laughing? She said, all of these beings have Buddha nature. All of them have innate purity. All of them have the potential to be Buddhas. And uh, she began to laugh, you know, uncontrollably, rejoicing in that. Then she began to weep again. And the Lama said, well, why are you crying? And she said, they do not recognize it. They don't know their own Buddha nature. They, uh, and that's the sorrow. So in terms of uh, equanimity, there are three common denominators that Buddha nature, the fact that we're all interconnected, that all of us have been each, I have been your mother, and each of you have been my mother. On the uh, street and airports and shopping malls, uh, you can contemplate, look at each person and think, mother, there is a teenager. You know, with piercings, every mother. Uh, there's, you know, it is, there are people that you do not want to acknowledge that they are your mother, but they have been your mother. And uh, maybe mother, and this really includes the very worst of them, the great villains in his- history, the people that we want to exclude from our inner relationships the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Maos. Um, I once said to somebody, I really can't pray for Mao. I said, don't worry, the Dalai Lama does that. He takes care of that one. (laughs) The impartiality is essential because if we exclude any sentient being from our intention that all sentient beings should be free of the conditions of samsara, then uh, our commitment is, is uh, incomplete. And so then sometimes we really have to think about it. You know, yesterday Lama Sering and I went through, I'm from Texas, we went through the whole roster of bikers, you know, like CNN had all the pictures. So we looked at each picture, one after the other. It was uh, informative. We've got a lot of work to do, as buddy office, you know. There are guys out there who have no intention uh, to, to come under our sway. And yet we can't give up on them. And there's a kind of um, hmm, this kind of a joyous courage that arises simply from knowing that you're not going to give up on any one of them, that in a situation in which you were uh, imprisoned unjustly. Are you were in prison in a body that was deteriorating. Or you were imprisoned in some uh, uh, completely overwhelming situation that with the intention of uh, benefiting beings, you would still know what to do with your mind. Shuddha Rinpoche, in his uh, sequence of lifetimes, we think that the toku is like, you know, they wear the gold vest and pretty, you know, they're four years old and everybody's doing prostrations and they get the best education. It's not like that. Uh, in one of his lifetimes, he was murdered. another lifetime, he was in jail the whole lifetime. There was nothing that he could do outwardly. And yet, uh, inwardly, he made aspirations. And he said that this past lifetime, this 16th lifetime, was the the fruition of the aspirations made in jail. There's always something to do with mind. As long as we're able to to make the choices and. In terms of the continuity of our mind, then um, that ability is more precious. It's the defining ability of a precious human rebirth that we have the conditions to make beneficial spiritual choices with our mind. The uh, Teachings that I must rely on in the training of the bodhisattva path are the teachings of Longchenpa, and they are collected in a book uh, published by Terton Tukus Group, kindly bent to ease The first volume, the book, uh, the chapter on is translation, the four measurably part great catalyst of beings, of being. And so the... Uh, it, then Tartin Toku also published it in a second book, in Langchampas' Last Testament. Uh, he included this chapter in the Four bus So those... and uh, those... Teachings, the Lanchampa sees the, the possibility of, of cultivating the quality of equanimity or love or compassion or joy uh, completely making it an immeasurable quality by including, starting with a reference. You really think of, of people who are close to you, and you see that they suffer from attachment and aversion, and you think, may you be free of that attachment and aversion. If you analyze it, it's our own attachment and aversion uh, arising from the confusion about the nature of reality, that we're grasping at the dream, that thwarts our well-being, and not only us, but other beings. And so you think, okay, uh, may you be free of attachment and aversion. Uh, may you accomplish a measurable equanimity. And you expand it until you've included all of the those that you've uh, encountered and those in other realms. And then you rest the mind non-referentially. That resting of the mind after cultivating contemplation, that first moment is very fresh. There's insights in the first moment. If you try to stabilize the rest, then it becomes another distortion. But Cultivating contemplating, resting. But Langchmpa's brilliance is that uh, he also sees that cultivating uh, the quality of equanimity, it can become a kind of dull neut- neutrality. Whatever <laughs> with a roll of the eyes, and so he says that when you you find your mind becoming dull, then you need to change the the contemplation and then you contemplate love. and so then the the Contemplation of love is looking at each being and wishing that they have happiness in this very moment and ultimately. And when you go around the street again, uh, looking at at others and think, what would make you happy? You know, we we see uh, many people and also animals in very uh, difficult circumstances, in deteriorated circumstances. You know, people sleeping on the street, on cardboard, in the rain. And you really look at them and think, may you find happiness. I... Uh, When you are dealing with those that you know, that are close to you, it becomes uh, even more potent, actually, because you have an idea of what would bring them happiness. And you also have a limitation of how much you want to to contribute to that happiness. Well, uh, you would be happy if I... uh, Bought you an air ticket, but I'm not going there, <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. So, the uh, what Lanchampa says to do is think of the one that you already love the most, like your child or grandchild, for a lot of us, or your lover and you think uh, how much you want that person's happiness you really want their happiness and then impartially you add someone that uh, you don't care about is quite as much and the emotional wish for the first person's happiness you generate for the second person and you look and you think, may you have equally have happiness, and then you again expand, and so then looking at a lot of beings, you see it's very difficult to 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 find um, the. The substance of happiness is not. You're not going to be able to, to to make that moment of happiness very easily. But you are. You will find, and if this is your your practice, and it makes a very good daily practice for a long, long time, that if this is your practice, you'll find that uh, you will be able to contribute happiness to many more people than ever before. And you find that what beings really wish is unconditional love, Uh, whether they are uh, positive or negative, whether they're in troubled states and impossible, or whether they are really generous and easy to have affectionate for. That uh, everyone would really wish to have unconditional love. It someone who really cares about their particular happiness. Uh, they... And you'll find that your own limitations of love fall away. that many of us feel unlovable. It's uh, a syndrome of unlovability for whatever reason. Yeah. I won't get into it. That's There are a lot of therapists in this room. <laughs> Go to them. <laughs> but uh, when you're cultivating love in this very open way, then... You feel more lovable, and what Lanchampa says to do is to, to expand it until you've included beings, like concentric levels and circles of beings, until all beings are included in this loving wish, and then rest the mind. Uh, that's a different experience. We have the example of great saints like Gandhi. In the moment of his assassination, he's still chanting the mantra of Krishna, of love, and that Christ on the cross, it's still, it's unbreakable uh, wish that all of these beings, uh, our mothers, our children, if they could only find happiness, The the, uh, unwavering wish for their happiness beyond boundaries. And we experience that in meditation, in the moment of meditation that follows contemplation. But then champo also recognizes that, uh, that love can become ungrounded. You know, everyone loves a lover, kind of woodstock love. You know, love the one you're with, kind of. <laughs> so he said, when you're feeling uh, kind of giddy with love and ungrounded, then it's time to cultivate compassion. And the compassion is looking at the suffering of sentient beings and seeing the, all of the sources of suffering. The, uh, we have the obvious sufferings in our human realm, the suffering of birth, old age, which is becoming more and more apparent, so we get older, uh, sickness and death not getting what you want, not uh, being able to avoid what you don't want, or getting what you want and then not wanting it anymore, wanting to divorce what you used to want. Uh, This kind of frustration, ongoing frustration. We see this all around us. And uh, the... uh, The deeper suffering is really that uh, we are living an illusion; that we're out of sync with, with absolute reality. We have that longing within us for the uh, for a kind of stability that can only come by recognizing absolute nature. It's a longing for unconditioned, absolute uh, state of being, being itself. And so then all of these uh, sources of uh, suffering uh, inform us but then we look specific, we specifically and see the suffering of being after being. We're willing to, to contemplate it, to countenance it, and to not avoid it. Uh, usually you try to keep it at a distance. But when we're cultivating compassion, then uh, we're willing to, to look at it and make the wish, May you be free of that suffering, now and ultimately, then the... a tenderness arises from that. A sort of... deeper care. Even when we see, you know, the twenty-five bikers uh, and their completely stupid faces then there's still this this compassion how did you get into this state how did this happen and there's a story of a demon in Tibet that it was a murderous evil kind of demon um now we yes. really believe that there are beings in unseen realm who have a demonic intention. But anyway a Lama was uh meditating and the demon came into the room with the intention to harm him. And a Lama looked up from his meditation, just looked at this being and he thought, you know, how did this happen? What kind of conditions gave rise to your state of being, your state of mind, Uh, how did it happen like this? And he started to cry with the uh, unbearable pity of it all, the sorrow of it all. And the demon looked at the Lama and he felt the compassion and he started to cry too. And uh, then he stopped harming. That unconditional compassion arises by impartially including everyone, even the, uh, the lords of uh, our universe, you know, the masters of Silicon Valley. Uh, there is suffering there. There is stress there. There's uh, no one anywhere in samsara who avoids the inevitability of painful conditions. Those who have great and wonderful conditions, even in the moment of experiencing them, they know that there's the undercurrent of change and the great undercurrent of death. So then one includes everyone, all beings in all realms, in one's impassionate intention, then rests the mind in non-referential compassion. For many people, the experience of non-referential compassion is ignites their spiritual path. Uh, If I listen to people's stories of how you met Dharma, it's uh, oftentimes, in the middle of some situation, there's a breaking of the boundaries of self and other, and a feeling of the connectedness with all beings, and this overwhelming sense of... uh, compassion that's also blissful because we are um, so frustrated by our limitations and our boundaries that when we have these waves of compassion, then it's blissful. And so maybe one finds that in that moment. But if it goes wrong and you're walking around the streets of San Francisco and you're reading The Chronicle, you're watching the news and then you have all the family's stories and your friends' stories and yeah your dog is old and dying. Uh, Longchmpa knows that you can get very tired and weary and uh, that's the kind of uh, neurotic turn on compassion, where you just feel like it's all too much. And even great bodhisattvas have had that moment. There's the story of Chen who said, If I ever doubt that I can liberate all sentient beings, then let my head break. So, eons of enlightened activity on behalf of sentient beings, uh, Bodhisattva activity. And uh, one day he looked out at the ocean of sentient beings, you know it didn't seem to be getting smaller. and it was doubted that all of these beings would ever find Buddhahood. His head broke. and when it was uh, brought back together, it was eleven heads yeah. <laughs> In our visualization there are three, there's one for the whole beings and paths to to uh, free oneself from the projections of anger, one for the ghostly beings free oneself from the the projections of obsession for human beings and all their mixtures uh, for the jealous God's realm, a wrathful one. Uh, And so then these 11 heads, each of them was significant as a path out of samsara, and also a thousand arms of a thousand eyes, representing the thousand Buddhas of this fortunate eon. And so then all of this was put together and he continued on. In teaching about the uh, emotions, this is the sixth Rikpa Center, in which I've taught, the strongest insight that's evolved is that uh, we can't let our emotions really stop our pure intention. In the ocean of samsara, there are ups and downs. There uh, There are times when everything is difficult. They're great beings uh, who are in states of um, completely degenerate bodies. Even Chogyam Rinpoche, in the end of his life, he'd look at his body and go, ah, "This old body, body changing time." You know, it's <laughs> really. Uh, yeah, it's really old is hard to bear. Forgetting things is hard to bear. Uh, the, uh, but nothing really needs stop. Our intention. To. To realize, the nature of all of that, and as sorrows arise in our life, then we bring it onto the path of our spiritual um, integration. We integrate it with our spiritual intention as our compassion. When joys arise, then we integrate it as offering. That uh, we don't have to avoid joy. We don't have to be guilty. That uh, we're fortunate. We're fortunate in this moment because of some virtue in the past, when we, the good fortune arises, then to, to really savor it and then offer it as a mandala to our beings. And so then that cultivation of joy is the antidote for the weariness that can come with uh, compassion gone wrong. <laughs> the uh, the kind of compassion that that uh, delimits itself into just pity and sadness. The uh, cultivation of joy is uh, again looking at each being and thinking, "You are Buddha nature. You." Really, our Buddha, may you realize that. And making the wish that whatever comfort and pleasure they have, which arises from some virtue in the past, that it not be lost, that it expand. And that really makes you, uh, you able to to look at those who are really suffering. And... Uh, see if there is any source of pleasure in their life, and rejoice in it, participate in it, enhance it. I was trained as a journalist earlier on, and there's a very good book, and I can't remember the uh, writer, but he was talking about the limitations of uh, journalism and how you're pressured in this way and that way to produce stories that are really an incomplete. But he also talked about how the journalist himself can uh, go in these situations. And So he was in a place like Sudan, or uh, I think it was Sudan, or some other place where the people were really uh, oppressed and starving. And so he was being taken around by an NGO, and he went to the first camp. Wow, so much misery. Second count, so much misery. The third count, he just couldn't do it again, you know, like just, you know, like... And he just, like, looked at people and he said, Hi. And they all perked up and said, Hi. Hi. You know, and he really saw that, that these are people who are resilient people who are in a very bad moment of their life, that he could uh, rejoice in their resiliency. So it makes it interesting. Here in San Francisco, you have a lot of panhandlers. Uh, sometimes if you're in an expansive mood, maybe you give them money. But if you give them that money, look at them, right in the eye. I can never take in two eyes at the same time. I just look at the left eye. And then you really look at them and and think, you know, may this uh, offering of, you know, $5 or $1, whatever it is, quarter, uh, this isn't much. This isn't going to make you happy for very long. But may may it make you happy in the happiness that you have. May you not lose it. May it expand until you have ultimate happiness. And it really makes it worthwhile to make the connection then. It's not just you giving something to them and then it all like evaporates into alcohol. There was one time in San Francisco that uh, I was walking in a down near the Tenderloin, and this guy came and he said, I need food, can you give me some money? I said, you want a drink, don't you? So I gave a fight, I said, you really enjoy that drink. You know, don't <laughs> and uh, he looked at me and I looked at him and we both just laughed uproariously. <laughs> Another time in Santiago, Chile, This old guy came up and I was shopping, you know, and I was kind of guilty about the shopping. So then I gave him some money and uh, then I went into a shoe store across the street. The shoe guy goes, do you know who that is? He owns three blocks of the main street here. (laughs) I went outside and I went to the guy and I said, listen, what are you doing? You know what kind of what do you what are you creating for yourself here? Uh, I know that now that you own three blocks of Santiago, Chile, and he looked at me and I looked at him, and we both just laughed. He didn't give me my money back. But <laughs> the, uh, it a, it's a shared moments. The. Uh, In terms of uh, the purification of the emotions, when we cultivate equanimity, it antidotes our own pride. Because we establish an equanimity, normally we have a kind of calibration, positioning of ourself and others. When we're really cultivating the equanimity of recognizing Buddha nature, and the equanimity of uh, selfless altruism, then we, in appreciating the qualities of others, it it mitigates our own arrogance. When we cultivate love, it uh, it alleviates our anger. And our anger is the... uh, Unpurified, unrecognized, it becomes the most destructive of the emotions because of the harm we can affli- inflict in the moment of anger for one thing and the underlying destructive pattern of resentment. The uh, We in the West, this is not so much an Asian thing, but we in the West... Have the tendency to have self anger. And one of the most uh, surprising, I guess I was shocked, teachings that Shadra Rupachai gave me is when he told me, because I'm in anger is kind of my mode, and uh, like most angry people. I kind of reined it in through the teachings of the Dharma, so that uh, you're not angry at all of those people out there. But there are a few people, you know, in your sangha and in your family, that you have anger. But you know they understand you, and then you work with that, and uh, you see that it's uh, it's not. Uh, a source of well-being. And then you have one being that you can still be angry at, which is yourself. And, uh... Remember Jay said, that self-anger can take you straight to hell. It can create a hellish state of mind. And, uh, what? But it's only me, you know, who's being harmed. But after that, uh, that uh, that changed my perspective. So the cultivation of compassion mitigates selfish desires, selfish passion. That's a little bit more difficult to understand. How does that happen? When you really have compassion for others, whether it's empathetic or whether it's transcendent compassion, because you see the, uh, the situation of beings, there's a there's a need for less for yourself. You don't have uh, so many desires for yourself. It's like... Uh, a mother who out of compassion will give her food to her children. It's your intention is more and more on on what you can offer, uh, how you can alleviate suffering instead of what you can get and uh, a carelessness about others' suffering. And this is something we really need to think about now because as someone just said, there's a lot of uh, fires today because there's a big population. There's a big population on the earth, and there's less water, and resources, and every other kind of uh, space, and um, that uh, that we can share. And so, to uh, to really out of compassion, decide. I can I need less so I can offer more and so release from the 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 golden chains of having so much and then joy alleviates jealousy when we really rejoice, like we see someone who's a supermodel, someone who's really rich, or somebody—I'm—I have am very envious of people who speak other languages. It's like um, I feel shy around them, and it's hard to to really, you know, be comfortable around them because I feel so inadequate in that in that regard. But if you rejoice in others' abilities and in their knowledge and in their their wealth and you understand that all of this, although it's impermanent, it arose from virtue and you really rejoice and hope that, that uh, this surge of good fortune uh, only increases, then you're participating. You don't have to have so much yourself. You really have the joy of others' well-being. Once in Australia, uh, Chajar Rinpoche, I was translating for him. I was never a very good translator. It was really stressful for me. But uh, normally I like to shop and he didn't like to shop. Yeah, I. But in this stressful time in which I was translating. I didn't want to shop. And he wanted to shop for some reason. And so then uh, in a lunch period in which I really wanted to take a nap, we sailed into some expensive neighborhood of Sydney, Australia, which is expensive anyway. And uh, we were going from the one luxury store to another remember she was surrounded by about eight women who were really like with him on the shopping trip and so then suddenly he's going through the door of the most expensive luxurious shop of all and there's a woman with perfect fingernails perfect hair and perfect gray suit saying may i help you And I'm pulling on Rinpoche's jacket, you know. Rinpoche, we cannot afford anything in this store. Why do we want to go into the store? And and he's sort of sailing forth. And uh, he turns to me and goes, what's wrong with you? Mandala offering. We can offer. We don't have to own what we offer. You know, we can look at beauty. We can look at the beauty owned by others. And we can say, okay, this is an offering. I rejoice in this offering. Uh, I offer without attachment. It really contributes to our own happiness in the moment and in the future. It really creates the vectors of joy. There are many emotions that I am not really talking about. You can ask questions. Like depression, like stress, like anxiety, like uh, um, alienation, um, guilt is a huge one. The if we if we learn to sit very still and simply look. They arise one after another, like uh, clouds in the sky, and they pass. There's different ways to talk about it. But you have to find the stillness of the mind. And then when the emotions arise, you can be aware of them, and you can make a choice to follow them or not. The uh, if in the morning we start the morning with uh, the with some formal practice. Formal practice always has three parts. It has the preliminaries, it has the main practice, it has the dedication. And so you do your practice. And then after that practice, that practice is like a lens. It uh, shows you mm, where you are. And it shouldn't be dependent on emotions, you know, oh my meditation, it's too distracted today. I don't feel well today. I feel really irritable today. I'll practice when I'm feeling better. It should be just a regular and probably short practice. Um, and then after, then you establish a motivation. Now the motivation can be uh, on any level in the Buddha Dharma, the motivation of uh, choosing simplicity and renunciation, cutting attachment, because you don't want to to become under the influence of the emotion, or it can be the bodhisattva's emotion that today I will uh, use my time to benefit all beings, and I'll train my mind. Or it can be the Vajrayana motion, the Vajrayana motivation, which is to cultivate pure perception throughout the day. So you decide what you're going to do, and it's like putting glasses on. And then throughout the day, then you have a main practice. It can be simply seeing everybody as your mother, or everybody is having Buddha nature, or cultivating the wish for happiness, or the the wish that others not suffer, or rejoicing, or any one of the the practices that uh, you have access to. Uh, throughout the day, if you decide to to work with one of the four measurables uh, to then um, that can be enhanced by the practice of Tonglan, of breathing in the darkness and suffering and transforming it with pure intention, and in breathing out happiness and light. This is incredibly powerful practice. I'm sure those of you who've done it extensively and in Rigpa you do do it and extensively, then you know that, or it can be um, anything as your main practice. The, the word gon, meditation in Tibetan, means repeat, it means you bring your mind back to the point that you've decided on throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, you look back on that day and you see uh, where you have uh, gone astray, where you followed your old pa- patterns of, of, um, of harmful emissions, emissions that are harmful to you and others. And maybe compounded with an outflow of harmful speech speech, harsh speech or slanderous speech, divisive speech. Uh, you look back on, on where in your own measure you've had downfalls and you rely on a source of wisdom as the witness of purification and acknowledge, and make a commitment not to repeat, and then receive light and blessing yourself, and then again rest the mind. And at the same time, you look back on the day, and this is equally important, because most of us as spiritual practitioners have the habit of virtue, the habit of merit, of kindness, of generosity, of moral discipline. We have that habit, but we forget to seal it. We forget to to gather it as an accumulation of merit. And so you look back on that day and you see what you've done that is virtuous, what would generate merit, and then that you offer to us sentient beings. You think, okay, may this resonate through the realms of beings. May they all be benefited by it. Um, may they all be free of the, the negative emotions that arise from misunderstanding of reality itself, that basic in- ignorance that leads to all kinds of ignorance, conduct, and speech, and thought. May they all be free of that. May they all find peace and happiness. If you know someone in particular who you can't really help, but you wish to, then you can dedicate to them first, and then to all beings, and then rest the mind. That resting of the mind should never be really held too firmly, extended too long. Uh, in the Vajrayana, we talk about the development stage and the completion stage. And I kind of complained to my stepson, Jigme Rinpoche. He said, We do a lot of development stage, you know, we go through these development stage practices. Extensively, why don't we get to do the completion stage? Yeah. Why don't we get to sit a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, You know, uh, if you try to hold it, you lose the freshness. It's that first moment of dropping it, dropping whatever it is, is the main practice. Whether it's visualization or contemplation or mantra, stopping. And then when the mind moves, moving with it into the next phase. If we do that, then we find the wisdom of the emotions. And anger becomes brilliant clarity. The desire that we feel becomes transcendent desire for the to, the liberation, happiness of all beings, discernment, understanding of the nature of reality. Equanimity becomes the, the wisdom of equanimity, where there's complete equality, self, other, inner, outer, phenomena, emptiness. Transcendent joy becomes the accomplishment, all accomplishing wisdom. You really have the, the intention that beings have happiness. And whenever you see happiness and rejoice, then you think, good, that's accomplished. <laughs> and I don't have to do it. It's all accomplished. It's perfect. I can relax. The purification of ignorance itself is really the wisdom of basic space. Wisdom, the, the last filaments of mind that separate us from complete enlightenment are these subtle distressions, subtle, subtle ignorance. This podcast is supported by the generosity and kindness of Chagdagumpa members and donors. If you're interested in becoming a member, making a donation, or if you want to learn more about Chagdagumpa, feel free to go to Chagdagumpa.org.